Hey, it's good to see you. My name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here at our Carmel location. Thanks for being patient with us. So we figured on 4th of July weekend, it was just good to have one service at both of our locations. And it's pretty full in here. If you have kids and Gen Kids, be sure to thank your Gen Kids workers today because all of those classes are maxed out. So they're over there doing their thing. We're in here. Just be sure to say, hey, thank you for taking care of our kiddos this morning. I want to take a moment and pray as we dive in. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. I'm thankful for the songs that we just sang, Jesus. They remind me uh, that the story of scripture is true and it's still happening. Jesus, there will be a day that you return to make everything right. But in the meantime, you have empowered us with your word. You have given us your Holy Spirit. Uh, You've given us the gift of the church where we can gather, where we can discuss and read truth and learn about who you are and what you're like and and what, what you want for us to accomplish in our lives for your glory. So Holy Spirit, we, we invite you. We need you right now. Would you, as we jump into to Genesis 11 today, would you help us to hear, but not just to hear, to apply and to live and, and to, to use our lives for your glory, Jesus. That's our prayer. Uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you're having a good summer. Summer is a great time to get out of town and get away, break out the, norm, the normal, normal life, right? So our family just got back in town from a trip to the hills of Tennessee. We had a wonderful time. We went whitewater rafting. We went on our first alpine coaster. If you've never done that, it is really cool. Go at night. Don't bother going during the day. Night's a lot more fun, a little more terrifying. Um, but there were 25 of us staying in one cabin, me and my siblings. We have 15 kiddos between all of us. So it was our four families and my dad. This is uh, us at Laurel Falls. So just, you can imagine how loud that hardwood floor, hard wall, hardwood wall cabin was. Noise echoing everywhere. We had a great time together. We got in town late yesterday but now it's time to get back to normal. And I fully anticipate one, if not all of these beautiful children at some point this week, looking at one of their parents and saying that phrase that every kid says in the summer, I'm bored. I'm bored. In fact, one of our kids, I'm not gonna name a name. One of them said last night, we just got home. It's so boring around here. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? We just had a great week. Like we did so much fun stuff. Now it's not that they're spoiled or entitled, maybe a little bit, I don't know, but I think we all are. They don't understand yet those kids, boredom is just part of summer and being a kid, right? I mean, how many of you remember being bored in the summer? You had to figure out something to do and we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all this other stuff. We had to figure out what we were gonna do. And so I wanna take you back in time. We're gonna go way back to the 1900s. The year was 1988. I was 10 years old. Yeah, way back. I was 10 years old. And me and my brother and our five or six cousins, we kind of all lived together. All of our property came together. We had about 20 acres that we could roam on. And when we got bored, we figured out what we were gonna do. But in 1988, something special happened on this one particular day because our boredom led to some pretty serious creativity because we designed and built our very own car. And you don't believe me, so I brought a picture for you. Here we are. I am the driver. I've got the camouflage hat on. And this is my brother, Matt, over here to the side, my my cousin, Josh and Joe. And just like Johnny Cash, we built it one piece at a time and it didn't cost us a dime because my uncle was a builder and we had a stack of wood. We had hammers and nails. There were no screwdrivers, hammers and nails and four bike tires. And somehow one of us said, hey, let's build a car. And we did. It took us all day to build this car. And you can tell we're really proud of ourselves. Then it came time to take it for a ride. You want to know how well that went? Here we are. Yeah, 
We made it about four inches and that thing just collapsed. But that's not even the point of the story. Did you build a car when you were 10 years old? I mean, Elon Musk has done some really great things, but I don't think he's building wooden cars when he was 10. We were so proud of ourselves. Now, isn't it, isn't it amazing how creative we can be as human beings? I think our creativity, our ability to dream is an expression of God's goodness in our life. He is the ultimate creator. He created everything. He's allowed us to be creative. But have you noticed we live in a world where human potential and creativity seems to be pushing the limits of everything that is good. Like, doesn't it feel like we're gonna cross a line at some point and God's gonna be like, whoa, 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 let's back it up here just a little bit. I mean, we have artificial intelligence that is quickly outpacing human learning and it's starting to freak everyone out. Just go watch the Age of Ultron. We know how this ends. It's not good. Um, there are efforts to colonize Mars. By the way, there's no oxygen up there. I don't know why you'd wanna live up there, but like we got people that wanna live on Mars. The other day, I read an article about some Japanese scientists that have discovered a way to make mice pups. They took the cells of a mice, of a mouse, a male mouse, and they were able to create sperm and egg and they made mice pups. And they're hoping to do this with humans at some point in the future. Let that one blow your mind. Doesn't it feel like we're just living in a world where all of our creativity and all of our technology, it's getting ready to cross a line where God's gonna say, ah, I think we went a little too far. Now, we live in 2023 and we think this is, this is terrible. This has got to be a sign of the end of the world, maybe. But this is actually an ancient problem. It's been around for a long time. The problem isn't the technology. The problem is the people that are dreaming up the technology and the sin in our hearts and how we choose to use it. So today, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11 because we're going to look at a story way back, an ancient story before measurable time where we're gonna see humans and their creativity begin to push some limits. Now we're in this series called Sticky Stories and these stories are sticky because you've probably heard them or heard of them and the, and the lessons we learn tend to stick with us in life. And today we're gonna to be looking at a story in Genesis 11 known as the Tower of Babel. Now just by show of hands, how many of you, if I say the, to the Tower of Babel, how many of you are familiar with this story? I'm just curious because I've been doing, I've been asking people, hey, what do you know about the Tower of Babel? And I get the same response every time. Well, yeah, people were living at a certain day and age and they decided that they wanted to build a tower up to heaven, but for some reason it made God mad. And so he gave them a bunch of different languages and cast them all over the earth, right? That's basically the high level story in the, in the nine verses in Genesis chapter 11. But here's the thing. If you only know the baseline of the story, that's okay, but you'd be tempted to read this story and think, well, that's probably more like a, a, a fairy tale or a fable, right? I mean, that didn't really happen. But today, what I wanna show you is one, I believe that this is a historical event. I believe it really happened. I believe it teaches us something more importantly about the character of God and his original plan for humanity and his patience, his love, his grace, and his mercy for the people he created in his image and likeness who use our creativity to rebel against him. That's the underlying theme in this story. But before we jump into the Tower of Babel, 
I think it's gonna be really important for us to go back into the early chapters of Genesis to connect some dots along the way that help make this story make sense. So let's go back to Genesis chapter one. In Genesis one, God speaks everything into creation. He says it and it's there. And the pinnacle of his creation is humanity, man and woman created in his image and his likeness, more like him than anything else in all of creation. And right after creating man and woman, he gives them this job description found in Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's pretty straightforward, but it's so important that I'm gonna have you repeat that after me because it's gonna come up later. So repeat after me, be fruitful, Increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Pretty straightforward, right? Now, if you keep reading through Genesis, what you find is that sin enters humanity and things get so bad that God decides he's gonna have to flood the earth. He's gonna have to do away with all the humans except for one man and his family, Noah. And when Noah gets off the ark, he repeats this not once, but twice in the span of seven verses. Genesis 9-1, Noah gets off the ark and God says this, God blessed Noah and his son saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So just for good measure, let's repeat this again. Be fruitful, increase, fill the earth. Jump down to verse seven. As for you, God says, Noah, you and your family, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. I'm not gonna have you repeat it. You've already done that. You get the point. God's original intention for humanity, for men and women, was for us to be fruitful and multiply, to scatter across the earth, to rule the earth in God's place. Hold on to those details because there's one other detail in Genesis 10 that's gonna add up in Genesis 11. And it has to do with a guy with a really weird name. Now, Genesis 10 is a genealogy. And if you ever like get to a genealogy and you're thinking, I don't need this, there's usually something important in those genealogies. In verse eight, we meet a man named Cush. And this is what we learned about Cush. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, if this is all you know about this guy named Nimrod, you would think, man, this guy is pretty incredible. I mean, he's like the ultimate man's man. He's a warrior. He's a hunter. But have you ever been called a Nimrod? It's not a good thing. If you call somebody a Nimrod, I, it's never been meant as a compliment, okay? So here's the question. How do you go from being the ultimate man's man to one of history's greatest bozos? In fact, if you look up the name Nimrod, you're gonna find that it's synonymous with moron or idiot. So what did Nimrod do? What was he about that changed the meaning of his name so much? Well, it actually has to do with the meaning of his name. Nimrod's name literally means let's rebel. Now you've probably never named your kids Nimrod, but they've got a little Nimrod in them, right? They want to rebel. They want to push against. Now Warren Wiersbe notes that the phrase mighty warrior on the earth and mighty hunter before the Lord, we read those like the ultimate outdoorsman, but really what it means or what it was meant to mean is that Nimrod was a tyrant. He was a dictator. He was hunting down people to rule over them and to build up his own empire. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 10 uh, verses 10 through 12. The first centers of Nimrod's kingdom were, and then there's a bunch of places that are listed, but I just want you to pay attention to a, a few. Babylon, Shinar, Assyria, and Nineveh. Now here's what we learn in Genesis 10. Nimrod was the first empire builder after the flood. And you might think, well, well why is that a bad thing? Well, if you're familiar with these places, Babylon, Shinar, Assyria, 
they ultimately become in the Old Testament, the ultimate enemy of God and God's people. For those of you that love geography, here's where we're talking. Mount Hermon and Mount Tabor, that's, this is where Israel would be in the Old Testament. If you look off to the east, you see Shinar and Babylon over there. So this is modern day Iraq. And what we know about Nimrod and his people are they are the enemies of God. Now, question. All that's good to know, but what does this have to do with the Tower of Babel? Well, let's jump in and see. Genesis 11, verse one. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So this is really interesting. The, the writer of the book of Genesis, who we believe to be Moses, is telling this. This is a unique period in history where everyone spoke the same language. But that phrase, one language in common speech, also implies that they didn't just talk the same, they were thinking the same. In other words, everybody was drinking the same Kool-Aid. Everybody was thinking the same thing. And that seems like a really good thing, doesn't it? But here's the problem. Sin was still on the earth. And sin has a way of corrupting all the things that God meant to be good. So let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse, uh, Genesis 11, verse two. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, Remember Shinar, this is part of Nimrod's kingdom. Nimrod, the guy that means, his name means let's rebel. So pay attention. This is where they're living. But there's a fascinating detail in this passage that I want you to see. It says they were moving to the east or they were moving eastward. Now, I didn't know this until recently, but there is a pattern in the book of Genesis where people physically move to the east, but it also represents them moving away from God. When Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because of their sin, they leave to the east. When their first son, Cain, kills his brother Abel, Cain wanders in the east. In Genesis 13, we're going to meet a man named Abraham and Lot, uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot. And when they have to part ways because their, their uh, clans are too big, Lot goes to the east towards uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 29, I'm going to give you a guess. You get one guess. Which direction do you think Jacob went in when he tricked his dad and his brother into receiving the family birthright? He did not go west. He went to the east. So there's this pattern of people physically moving east, but they're not just moving away from the garden. They're moving away from the presence of God. And what we see in Genesis 11 is as humanity moves or migrates to the east, they're actually setting up for a universal rebellion against God. Look at verse three. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and let's bake them thoroughly. They used brick, and, brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So here's where humanity's creativity and technology comes into play. There's this new technology called bricks, right? And what makes brick different than stone? Well, stone occurs naturally. It's, it's made by God in the earth, right? But man can now make bricks and bricks, you can make them the same size, you can make them bigger, you can make them stronger, you can build with them. Question, is that a bad thing? Well, I don't know that it's a bad thing, but here's the question. Are they gonna use this new technology to complete the will of God or are they gonna use this technology to rebel against him? So let's read and see what happens. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, this is where the Tower of Babel comes in. Throughout history, we see the Tower of Babel depicted something like this, this massive tower that reaches way up into the heavens, right? That's what the story would imply. But it probably didn't look like this. Actually, it probably looked a lot more like this. 
This is a ziggurat. It looks like a pyramid, except it doesn't have smooth sides. It has stairs. And the reason it has stairs is it allows people to get to the top. And why would people want to get to the top? Well, you see that the box on top? It's a temple. So a ziggurat was like a man-made mountain, a sacred mountain. And the purpose of these ziggurats were for people to get to the top, to interact with God. Now, again, this seems like a really good thing. Humanity is reaching out to God, except it wasn't good. And we see why. When we look back into the story, what's it say? We want to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What was God's original intent for humanity? To scatter and to multiply across the earth. So we're seeing an act of rebellion here. God said, I want you to go out. They said, no, I think we're going to stay here. We're going to build up. So was the problem that God had given them one language? That wasn't the problem. That was actually a blessing. They could interact with one another. They could commune with God together. Was the problem that God had designed them to be creative? I don't think so. I mean, does anybody want God to take away your creativity? Our creativity reflects God's goodness. So the creativity wasn't the problem was the problem that they wanted to live in community with one another. That can't be the problem because God, throughout scripture, we see how important community is for us to live in with one another. So again, what was the problem? The problem is that they said, well, this is what you want us to do, God, but this is what we wanna do instead. You want us to go out, we wanna stay here. You want us to scatter, we're gonna build up. And this is where in God and his divine wisdom, he steps in with a solution. Verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Now, don't, don't miss this. It says that God had to come down. That tells us no matter how tall their tower would have been, God's like, oh, bless your heart. Let me come down there. It's not because he's nearsighted. It's not because he's unaware of what's happening. Listen to how Isaiah describes God in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 22, it says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. So when it says that God came down, it's because God's over everything. Here's what I picture in my mind. When you have an infant and the baby is laying on the ground, picture a dad getting down on his hands and knees to interact with their helpless child. This is, this is an act of mercy. God is coming down to see them. But even though God's all powerful, we also learn that he's personal. He doesn't run away. He comes to check things out. Look at verse six. The Lord said, as if at one person speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Now, if you're a parent, have you ever had your kids do something like this where you're like, oh man, they're getting a little big for their britches. If somebody doesn't step in, if I don't say something or do something or take away this privilege, they're probably going to end up hurting themselves. That's what it appears that God is, is doing here. Proverbs 3, 7 warns against the danger of being wise in our own eyes. And I think that's what we see happening in Genesis 11. Because it's easy to read this and think, well, God must've been intimidated. I don't, I don't think God's intimidated. I know God's not intimidated. He, he made them to be creative. I think he's concerned for their ability, for our ability to want to rebel against him. He sees things in the future that we can't see about. And it says, if they do this, nothing will be impossible for them. It's almost like he's like looking around saying, if they do this, they're gonna try to live on Mars one day and they can't breathe up there. This isn't gonna be good. You chuckle. That's the day and age we live in, right? So God knew that man was starting to test the healthy limits of creation. Look at verse seven. Come, 
Let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not be able to understand each other. Now, this word us is important. We see us in Genesis 1. Many believe, I believe it's a picture of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's speaking amongst himself. Come, let us go down. This is also believed to be a theophany, a a part of the Old Testament where Jesus comes down in his pre-incarnate form. He becomes, he takes on the form of a man to interact with humanity. This happens on several occasions throughout the Old Testament. But either way, here's the picture. God came down and he decided as a result to confuse the language of everyone in order to end this act of rebellion. Because in his infinite wisdom, God knew that humans can accomplish amazing things with the creativity he's given us, but he also sees the potential for sin in our heart. And he knows that when we get together as a collection of sinners and we start to do things apart from him, Well, there's no telling where we're gonna stop. I mean, just think back through history when our creativity, when our ideas go unchecked, it is not a good thing. So God decides to act. Verse eight, so the Lord scattered them there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, if you didn't know any better and you read this story, you would think, man, what's up with God? Like, what's his deal? Is he intimidated? Is he angry? Is he throwing a tantrum? Is he, is he pouting here? Or is it possible that God knows better than we do? Is it possible that God knows when we're getting ready to step out of bounds and he said, I'm gonna have to correct. I gotta address this issue of sin. We gotta correct this. So I want you to think of all the different ways we can see God's mercy in this story. The first way that we see God's mercy towards humanity is he he addresses the issue of sin. He doesn't just let it go unchecked. He says, this is not good. And that you might think, well, that seems harsh. But if, again, if you're a parent, you know, when you see your kids rebelling, you have to correct them or they're going to hurt themselves. And we also see as an act of mercy that God confused their language. Now, how is that an act of mercy? Well, he's the creator. He's already flooded the earth once and went down to a single family. He can do whatever he wants and be completely justified. He could have made everyone mute and we would have had to speak with sign language. But as an act of mercy, he created several different languages. And I want you to think how this happens. They have several different languages and they have to scatter. Well, they scattered by clans, they scattered by families so that they could ultimately fulfill his purpose that he had for them all along. So as an act of mercy, he allowed people to leave together, but not as the whole. Now, those are the details of the Tower of Babel. And, and, and you might be thinking, well, I don't get it. Like, how do we know this is true or not true? Well, interestingly enough, Britannica cites a Greek historian named Herodotus, who's known for being the father of history. So let's just say with that title alone, let's just say that this guy, let's just assume that he has a little bit of credibility. He lived around 400 BC and he claimed that the Tower of Babel was existing in his day in modern, what we know to be modern day Iraq. So take that for what you want. But here's a, here's a more important question. How do we know that this applies to our life? How does this apply to our life? How do we know that this isn't just a distant story from history and we're just supposed to say, okay, that's where languages came from? Well, I think that there's three, I don't know, three basic applications that we can walk away with. The first is pretty, pretty obvious. Number one, 
don't be a Nimrod. If Nimrod's name means let's rebel, and that's what he did. He led a rebellion on the earth that ended up scarring humanity to the point that God had to act and respond. Well, I think we should all check ourselves and say, I don't want to be like that guy. So don't be a Nimrod. Now, scripture tells us that sin is rebellion against God. Scripture also says that we've all sinned. So if we're not careful, all of us are going to be like, all of us are like Nimrod. We have to correct ourselves, which leads me to to point number two. You got to pay attention to where you're heading. Remember, we learned that these people were moving eastward. They were physically migrating, but they were also spiritually wandering away in their relationship with God. And I want you to think about all the ways that our selfish rebellion just naturally leads us away from God. We never see it. We just don't know that it's happening. Our lives begin to erode. And before we know it, we are so far away from God, we're disoriented. And it feels like we can't find our way back. It all comes from our rebellion. It all comes from our wandering heart. So just think of the ways personally. In fact, in a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray and say, Holy Spirit, will you show me where I'm wandering? But just be careful of where you're heading, where you're traveling in life. It might look, it might sound really good, but if you're heading to the east, you might need to turn around and head back to God. The, the biblical word for that is to repent. When you realize I have sinned, I have rebelled, I'm walking away from God, I have to repent and come back to him. And here's the third takeaway. We all have to resist the urge to make a name for ourselves. This one's hard because we live in a day and age where the goal is to make a name for yourself. I mean, think about social media. No one's honest on social media. We all want to have the best image possible projected to the world around us so that people think that we have it together, that our family has it together. We live in a world that's obsessed with this, right? Or all you gotta do is start the next goofy trend and and you go viral and everybody knows who you are and all of a sudden you're famous and all that sounds great, but it really is all just making a name for ourselves. But it's not just social media. I mean, in school we're taught, do the best you can do, be at the top of your class, be better than everyone else. In work, we're told, work long hours, do whatever you have to do to climb to the top of the ladder to be the guy on top, the lady on top, so everybody else has to bow down to you. It's all making a name for ourselves. Here's another one that's probably gonna hit a little close to home, but what about the youth sports culture? Sports are not bad. I love sports. I love athletics. But we, specifically where we live, we live in an area where youth sports or other extracurricular activities, they are held up in such high regard that families literally begin disintegrating. They don't eat dinner together anymore. They're doing all their own thing. And you don't know it, but you're just making a name for yourself or for your kid. And if your kid can make a name for themselves, well, some of that's gonna come back for you. I'm not saying don't try hard, don't work hard. I'm not saying take your kids out of sports. But you do, we need a gut check. Are we living in rebellion against God? Are we accomplishing the thing that he has for us that he's called us to do? Are we trying to make a name for ourselves or for others and ignoring God along the way? Because the story in Genesis 11 isn't a pretty, it's not a pretty story. Now it's interesting, if you you look at Genesis 11 and you read on to Genesis 12, there's a turn. Because in Genesis 11, the people are rebelling against God. They wanna make a name for themselves. And the very next character that the rest of Genesis is focused on is a man named Abram. And in Genesis 12, 2, listen to what God says to him. He's old. He can't have children. This is what God says. I will make your name great, Abram. 
If you follow me and if you believe me, that's a big difference from making a name for ourselves to God saying, I want to make your name great. And if you're not familiar with his story, he has a son, that son has a son, that son has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, it's building in a story to where eventually the Messiah is born to the 12 tribes, to Abraham's family. That's how God made his name great. And I think he wants to do the same for each one of us. But the way our names become great in his book is through faith in his son, Jesus, and in Jesus alone. So here's how I want us to end today. I've given you a lot of information to chew on. Go back, read the story for yourself. You, do, you dig in on your own. But I want us to take, I don't know, a few minutes and just say, okay, Lord, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to take away from this story? And I want you to be really bold and say, will you convict me? Will you show me where I'm being rebellious? Will you show me how I'm wandering away from you? Will you show me where I'm trying to make a name for myself? So take a moment. I wanna give you a moment to pray through that on your own. year, we started in a series that we've done the first half of the series on the book of Acts. We're going to pick it up this fall. And very early in the book of Acts, we see a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to his followers. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, what's the first thing that happens? They begin speaking and everyone else can hear them in their native tongue, their native language. It's a powerful it's a powerful insight into how God intends for us to scatter and to multiply over the earth. He can do more through his Holy Spirit than we can ever do when we submit to the authority of Christ in our lives. And in just a moment, we're gonna sing a song that declares that as followers of Jesus, we are called to go into this world to declare his name everywhere that we go. But I want us to continue to lean in to this opportunity to pray. We're gonna have some staff members and some prayer uh, team volunteers over here. And I want to invite you to leave your seat and to come and find them and to pray. Now, you might think, well, if I go over there, somebody's gonna think that my life is a wreck. Maybe it is. Maybe that's why you need to go pray. But maybe you need to confess something. Maybe there's something you need to praise God for. Maybe there's a decision that you're trying to make. Maybe you've seen him move recently. I want to invite you to make it tangible and come over here and say, Holy Spirit, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna pray with someone about whatever this issue is, and I'm gonna trust you to do more than I could do. Hearing the Holy Spirit's voice to draw you over there and not moving, it's kind of like an act of rebellion. Now, the, the goal isn't for everybody to go over there, 
But if you feel called to, to have somebody pray with you today, move in that direction. But we're gonna continue to worship Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. So would you stand and worship with us?